Chapter Twenty Eight of Erwan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laura Davis. Erwan by Samuel Butler. Chapter Twenty Eight. Escape. Though busily engaged in translating the extracts given in the last five chapters. I was also laying matters in train for my escape with Arowina, and indeed it was high time, for I received an intimation from one of the cashiers of the musical banks that I was to be prosecuted in a criminal court ostensibly for measles, but really for having owned a watch and attempted the reintroduction of machinery. I asked why measles, and was told that there was a fear lest extenuating circumstances should prevent a jury from convicting me if I were indicted for typhus or smallpox but that a verdict would probably be obtained for measles, a disease which could be sufficiently punished in a person of my age. I was given to understand that unless some unexpected change should come over to the mind of His Majesty, I might expect the blow to be struck within a very few days. My plan was this, that Arowina and I should escape in a balloon together. I fear that the reader will disbelieve this part of my story, yet in no other have I endeavored to adhere more conscientiously to facts and can only throw myself upon his charity. I had already gained the ear of the queen, and had so worked upon her curiosity that she promised to get leave for me to have a balloon made and inflated. I pointed out to her that no complicated machinery would be wanted, nothing, in fact, but a large quantity of oiled silk, a car, a few ropes, etc., etc., and some light kind of gas such as the antiquarians who were acquainted with the means employed by the ancients for the production of the lighter gases could easily instruct her workmen how to provide. Her eagerness to see so strange a sight as the ascent of a human being into the sky overcame any scruples of conscience that she might have otherwise felt, and she set the antiquarians about showing her workmen how to make the gas, and sent her maids to buy, and oil, a very large quantity of silk for I was determined that the balloon should be a big one, even before she began to try and gain the king's permission. This, however, she now set herself to do, for I had sent her word that my prosecution was imminent. As for myself, I need hardly say that I knew nothing about balloons, nor did I see my way to smuggling Arowina into the car. Nevertheless, knowing that we had no other chance of getting away from Erwan, I drew inspiration from the extremity in which we were placed, and made a pattern from which the queen's workmen were able to work successfully. Meanwhile, the queen's carriage builders set about making the car, and it was with the attachments of this to the balloon that I had the greatest difficulty. I doubt, indeed, whether I should have succeeded here, but for the great intelligence of a foreman, who threw himself heart and soul into the matter, and often both foresaw requirements, the necessity for which had escaped me, and suggested the means of providing for them. It happened that there had been a long drought, during the latter part of which prayers had been vainly offered up in all the temples of the air god. When I first told Her Majesty that I wanted a balloon, I said my intention was to go up into the sky and prevail upon the air god by means of a personal interview. I own that this proposition bordered on the idolatrous, but I have long since repented of it, and am little likely ever to repeat the offense. Moreover, the deceit, as serious though it was, will probably lead to the conversion of the whole country. When the Queen told His Majesty of my proposal, he at first not only ridiculed it, but was inclined to veto it. Being, however, a very luxurious husband, he at length consented, 
as he eventually always did to everything on which the queen had set her heart. He yielded all the more readily now, because he did not believe in the possibility of my ascent. He was convinced that even though the balloon should mount a few feet into the air, it would collapse immediately, whereon I should fall and break my neck, and he should be rid of me. He demonstrated this to her so convincingly that she was alarmed, and tried to talk me into giving up the idea. But on finding that I persisted in my wish to have the balloon made, she produced an order from the king to the effect that all facilities I might require should be afforded me. At the same time, Her Majesty told me that my attempted ascent would be made an article of impeachment against me in case I did not succeed in prevailing on the air god to stop the drought. Neither king nor queen had any idea that I meant going right away if I could get the wind to take me, nor had he any conception of the existence of a certain steady upper current of air which was always setting in one direction, as could be seen by the shape of the higher clouds, which pointed invariably from southeast to northwest. I had myself long noticed this peculiarity in the climate, and attributed it, I believe justly, to a trade wind which was constant at a few thousand feet above the earth, but was disturbed by local influences at lower elevations. My next business was to break the plan to Arowina, and to devise the means for getting her into the car. I felt sure that she would come with me, but had made up my mind that if her courage failed her, the whole thing should come to nothing. Arowina and I had been in constant communication through her maid, but I had thought it best not to tell her the details of my scheme till everything was settled. The time had now arrived, and I arranged with the maid that I should be admitted by a private door into Mr. Nosnibor's garden at about dusk on the following evening. I came at the appointed time. The girl let me into the garden and bade me wait in a secluded alley until Arowina should come. It was now early summer and the leaves were so thick upon the trees that even though someone else had entered the garden, I could have easily hidden myself. The night was one of extreme beauty. The sun had long set, but there was still a rosy gleam in the sky over the ruins of the railway station. Below me was a city already twinkling with lights, while beyond it stretched the plains for many a league until they blended with the sky. I just noted these things, but I could not heed them. I could heed nothing till... As I peered into the darkness of the alley, I perceived a white figure gliding swiftly towards me. I bounded towards it, and ere thought could either prompt or check, I had caught Arowina to my heart and covered her unresisting cheek with kisses. So overjoyed were we that we knew not how to speak. Indeed, I do not know when we should have found words and come to our senses, if the maid had not gone off into a fit of hysterics and awakened us from the necessity of self-control. Then... Briefly and plainly, I unfolded what I proposed. I showed her the darkest side, for I felt sure that the darker the prospect, the more likely she was to come. I told her that my plan would probably end in death for both of us, and that I dared not press it, that at a word from her it should be abandoned, still that there was just a possibility of our escaping together to some part of the world where there would be no bar to our getting married, and that I could see no other hope. She made no resistance, not a sign or hint of doubt or hesitation. She would do all I told her, and come whenever I was ready. So I bade her send her maid to meet me nightly, told her that she must put a good face on, look as bright and happy as she could, so as to make her father and mother and Zalora think that she was forgetting me, and be ready at a moment's notice to come to the queen's workshops and be concealed among the ballast and under rugs in the car of the balloon. And so we parted. 
I hurried my preparations forward, for I feared rain, and also that the king might change his mind. But the weather continued dry, and in another week the queen's workmen had finished the balloon and car, while the gas was ready to be turned on into the balloon at any moment. All being now prepared, I was to ascend on the following morning. I had stipulated for being allowed to take abundance of rugs and wrappings as protection from the cold of the upper atmosphere, and also ten or a dozen good-sized bags of ballast. I had nearly a quarter's pension in hand, and with this I feed Arowina's maid and bribe the queen's foreman, who would, I believe, have given me assistance even without a bribe. He helped me to secrete food and wine in the bags of ballast, and on the morning of my ascent he kept the other workmen out of the way while I got Arowina into the car. She came with early dawn, muffled up and in her maid's dress. She was supposed to be gone to an early performance at one of the musical banks, and told me that she should not be missed till breakfast, but that her absence must then be discovered. I arranged the ballast about her, so that it should conceal her as she lay at the bottom of the car, and covered her with wrappings. Although it still wanted some hours of the time fixed for my ascent, I could not trust myself one moment from the car, so I got into it at once, and watched the gradual inflation of the balloon. Luggage I had none, save the provisions hidden in the ballast bags, the books of mythology, and the treatises on the machines, with my own manuscript diaries and translations. I sat quietly, and awaited the hour fixed for my departure. Quiet outwardly, but inwardly, I was in an agony of suspense lest Arowina's absence should be discovered before the arrival of the king and queen, who were to witness my ascent. They were not due yet for another two hours, and during this time a hundred things might happen, any one of which would undo me. At last the balloon was full. The pipe which had filled it was removed, the escape of gas having been first carefully precluded. Nothing remained to hinder the balloon from ascending, but the hands and weight of those who were holding on to it with ropes. I strained my eyes for the coming of the king and queen, but could see no sign of their approach. I looked in the direction of Mr. Nosnibor's house. There was nothing to indicate disturbance, but it was not yet breakfast time. The crowd began to gather. They were aware that I was under the displeasure of the court, but I could detect no signs of my being unpopular. On the contrary, I received many kindly expressions of regard and encouragement, with good wishes as to the result of my journey. I was speaking to one gentleman of my acquaintance, and telling him the substance of what I intended to do when I had got into the presence of the air-god. What he thought of me I cannot guess, for I am sure that he did not believe in the objective existence of the air-god, nor that I myself believed in it. When I became aware of a small crowd of people running as fast as they could from Mr. Nosnibor's house towards the Queen's workshops, for the moment my pulse ceased beating, and then, knowing that the time had come when I must either do or die, I called vehemently to those who were holding the ropes, some thirty men, to let go at once, and made gestures signifying danger, and that there would be mischief if they held on longer. Many obeyed. The rest were too weak to hold on to the ropes, and were forced to let them go. On this the balloon bounded suddenly upwards, but my own feeling was that the earth had dropped off from me, and was sinking fast into open space beneath. This happened at the very moment that the attention of the crowd was divided, the one half paying heed to the eager gestures of those coming from Mr. Nosnibor's house, and the other to the exclamations from myself. A minute more and Arowina would doubtless have been discovered, but before that minute was over, I was at such a height above the city that nothing could harm me, and every second both the town and the crowd became smaller and more confused. In an incredibly short time, 
I could see little but a vast wall of blue plains rising up against me towards whichever side I looked. At first, the balloon mounted vertically upwards, but after about five minutes, when we had already attained a very great elevation, I fancied that the objects on the plain beneath began to move from under me. I did not feel so much as a breath of wind, and could not suppose that the balloon itself was travelling. I was, therefore, wondering what the strange movement of fixed objects could mean, when it struck me that people in a balloon do not feel the wind inasmuch as they travel with it and offer it no resistance. Then I was happy in thinking that I must now have reached the invariable trade winds of the upper air, and that I should be very possibly wafted for hundreds or even thousands of miles, far from Erewhon and the Erewhonians. Already I had removed the wrappings and freed Arowina, but I soon covered her up with them again, for it was already very cold, and she was half stupefied with the strangeness of her position. And now began a time, dreamlike and delirious, of which I do not suppose that I shall ever recover a distinct recollection. Some things I can recall, as that we were ere long enveloped in vapor which froze upon my mustache and whiskers. Then comes a memory of sitting for hours and hours in a thick fog, hearing no sound but my own breathing and Arowina's, for we hardly spoke, and seeing no sight but the car beneath us and beside us, and the dark balloon above. Perhaps the most painful feeling, when the earth was hidden, was that the balloon was motionless, though our only hope lay in our going forward with an extreme of speed. From time to time, through a rift in the clouds, I caught a glimpse of earth, and was thankful to perceive that we must be flying forward faster than in an express train. But no sooner was the rift closed than the old conviction of our being stationary returned in full force, and was not to be reasoned with. There was another feeling also which was nearly as bad. For as a child that fears it has gone blind in a long tunnel if there is no light, so ere the earth had been many minutes hidden, I became half frightened lest we might not have broken away from it clean and forever. Now and again I ate and gave food to Arowina, but by guesswork as regards time. Then came darkness, a dreadful dreary time, without even the moon to cheer us. With dawn the scene was changed. The clouds were gone, and morning stars were shining. The rising of the splendid sun remained still impressed upon me as the most glorious that I have ever seen. Beneath us there was an embossed chain of mountains, with snow fresh fallen upon them. But we were far above them. We both of us felt our breathing seriously affected, but I would not allow the balloon to descend a single inch, not knowing for how long we might not need all the buoyancy which we could command. Indeed, I was thankful to find that, after nearly four and twenty hours, we were still at so great a height above the earth. In a couple of hours we had passed the ranges, which must have been some hundred and fifty miles across, and again I saw a tract of level plain extending far away to the horizon. I knew not where we were, and dared not descend, lest I should waste the power of the balloon, but I was half hopeful that we might be above the country from which I had originally started. I looked anxiously for any sign by which I could recognize it, but could see nothing, and feared that we might be above some distant part of Erwan, or a country inhabited by savages. While I was still in doubt, the balloon was again wrapped in clouds, and we were left to blank space and to conjectures. The weary time dragged on. How I longed for my unhappy watch! I felt as though not even time was moving, so dumb and spellbound were our surroundings. Sometimes I would feel my pulse, and count its beats for half an hour together, anything to mark the time, to prove that it was there, 
and to assure myself that we were within the blessed range of its influence, and not gone adrift into the timelessness of eternity. I had been doing this for the twentieth or thirtieth time, and had fallen into a light sleep. I dreamed wildly of a journey in an express train, and of arriving at a railway station where the air was full of the sound of locomotive engines blowing off steam with a horrible and tremendous hissing. I woke frightened and uneasy, but the hissing and crashing noises pursued me now that I was awake, and forced me to own that they were real. What they were I knew not, but they grew gradually fainter and fainter, and after a time were lost. In a few hours the clouds broke, and I saw beneath me that which made the chilled blood run even colder in my veins. I saw the sea, and nothing but the sea, in the main black but flecked with white heads of storm-tossed, angry waves. Arowina was sleeping quietly at the bottom of the car, and as I looked at her sweet and saintly beauty, I groaned and cursed myself for the misery into which I had brought her, but there was nothing for it now. I sat and waited for the worst, and presently I saw signs as though that worst were soon to be at hand, for the balloon had begun to sink. On first seeing the sea, I had been impressed with the idea that we must have been falling, but now there could be no mistake. We were sinking, and that fast. I threw out a bag of ballast, and for a time we rose again. But in the course of a few hours the sinking recommenced, and I threw out another bag. Then the battle commenced in earnest. It lasted all that afternoon and through the night until the following evening. I had seen never a sail, nor a sign of a sail though I had half-blinded myself with straining my eyes incessantly in every direction. We had parted with everything but the clothes which we had upon our backs. Food and water were gone, all thrown out to the wheeling albatrosses, in order to save us a few hours or even minutes from the sea. I did not throw away the books till we were within a few feet of the water, and clung to my manuscript to the very last. Hope there seemed none whatever. Yet, strangely enough, we were neither of us utterly hopeless, and even when the evil that we dreaded was upon us, and that which we greatly feared had come, we sat in the car of the balloon with the waters up to our middle, and still smiled with a ghastly hopefulness to one another. He who has crossed the St. Goddard will remember that below Andermatt there is one of those alpine gorges which reach the very utmost limits of the sublime and terrible. The feelings of the traveller have become more and more highly wrought at every step, until at last the naked and overhanging precipices seem to close above his head, as he crosses a bridge hung in mid-air over a roaring waterfall, and enters on the darkness of a tunnel, hewn out of the rock. What can be in store for him on emerging? Surely something even wilder and more desolate than that which he has seen already. Yet his imagination is paralyzed, and can suggest no fancy or vision of anything to surpass the reality which he had just witnessed. Awed and breathless he advances, when, lo, the light of the afternoon sun welcomes him as he leaves the tunnel, and behold a smiling valley, a babbling brook, a village with tall belfries, and meadows of brilliant green. These are the things which greet him, and he smiles to himself as the terror passes away and in another moment is forgotten. So fared it now with ourselves. We had been in the water some two or three hours, and the night had come upon us. We had said farewell for the hundredth time, and had resigned ourselves to meet the end. Indeed, I was myself battling with a drowsiness from which it was only too probable 
that I should never wake, when suddenly Arowena touched me on the shoulder and pointed to a light and to a dark mass which was bearing right upon us. A cry for help, loud and clear and shrill, broke forth from both of us at once, and in another five minutes we were carried by kind and tender hands onto the deck of an Italian vessel. End of chapter 28 Recording by Laura Davis